Greetings. Welcome to Greta's Generation Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Herman at the University College London. In this second season two of Greatest Generation Podcast, I interview some people that are quite close to my heart. In fact, most of the interviewees are researchers at UCL. So by interviewing mainly researchers from the University College of London, what I show through this season is how many different approaches are taken with regard to research and climate change. For example, I interview the head of the Sustainable Global Resources Department. Indeed, I also interview the founder and head of the Islands Laboratory. I interview some younger researchers, which I work very closely with from both the Sustainable Resources and Circular Economy Division, as well as from Global Governance Institute, where I'm currently placed. And then I also get into some interviewees from other universities, such as the Fondazione Enrico Matte, or FIM in Milano, and the European Institute for Environment and Economics, also in Milano. I have the pleasure to interview others from different universities throughout the world. But again, it's great to be able to focus on UCL. I must thank our sponsor. This podcast is only possible because I've obtained a seed funding grant from the UCL Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences, Dean's Strategic Fund. So I'm very happy to thank my sponsor again and be able to produce this second season. On that note, if anyone's listening out there that would like to sponsor a third season, I'm on the lookout for that. And I have gotten a lot of encouraging feedback on the first season, so I'm quite happy and encouraged to take that on. So without further ado, I'll let you jump into the episodes. They are in no specific sequential order. However, as usual, you will be able to see the details on the website www.greatestgeneration.com That's Greta, G-R-E-T-A, as in Greta Thunberg, the teenage climate change activist, who inspired this show not only because of the brilliant work she's done for climate change policy, but because it has become quite evident to me that it's more and more likely that her generation will actually have to make much of the changes and sacrifices in order to save the climate, which is unfortunate, but the show is meant to inspire this younger generation by demonstrating an array of different career paths they may take, or to suggest that if they are indeed worried about climate change, they needn't sit along and fret and have undue anxiety. If they decide, if should the younger generation decide not to pursue a career around this, there are ample opportunities to simply engage with civic activity and protests and even just learning more about it would be helpful because there is a lot of misinformation out there. And the more we can all learn and have a truthful dialogue around these issues, the better that we can all be in terms of confronting the climate crisis. Welcome to the last 
final episode of Season 2 of Greatness Generation Podcast. I'm delighted to invite on the show a member of Greatest Generation. I have with me a student now in university who will be conducting or helping me to conduct a, a quite a, a novel show here. First, I'll, I will ask her a few questions that have to do with uh, growing up and learning about climate change. And then we'll reverse the show to finally learn about who I am and what I do and some of my research interests. So now, uh, so at the end of the show, I'll be on the, on the podium. And uh, thanks again for all the listeners out there. It's been a wonderful season two and hope to see you again in the, the spring for season three of Greatest Generation Podcast. So here we are. Well, welcome to the show, Sal. Well, thank you, um, Dr. Herman, for introducing me. Uh, that was a great introduction. I'm excited to be on this podcast. All right, so let's just get right into it. Uh, I wanted to learn a little bit about, well, hear about what you know or have heard about climate change. Maybe you could start with describing the first time when you were much younger hearing about climate change and what did it first feel like? I think I was probably in elementary school around when I first learned about climate change. Um, and I remember being like super scared because I think it was in the context of like, the world is gonna end more like that. So I was, you know, scared of that. And then as I went through school, um, it was more like a fear that like the earth is like dying and like less of like, oh, I'm gonna die, but more of like, the earth is dying and no one really cares, which was also concerning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a thing called climate anxiety or yeah, climate syndrome, which is actually, they, I've heard that in the younger generations, much worse than other generations. Yeah, and then, uh, with it. yeah, <laughs> right. We've left it for you. And then this, uh, what about in school? So in, uh, well, in the UK, they call it grammar school, but in elementary school in the US, what was that like? Did you learn something about it from some teachers or classmates? We, I think we mostly learned about it. I started learning about it more, I think in middle school because elementary school or grammar school, it was um, less, less common to learn about. Middle school was more common, especially because we had set science classes. So we learned about, just mostly like, I remember it was like air pollution. Um, yeah, mostly air pollution, not really like getting into the details about it, just, uh, or as the recycling was also a big thing. Save the trees, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. But yeah. um, <laughs> that's mostly what they taught. It was very surface level in schools. In high school, but I don't then, remember learning about it at all, honestly. Hmm. But then, uh... I read from your CV that, that your father was a, uh, is, is a science teacher. I'm sure that he must have brought it up at one time. Oh, he, yes, that was outside <laughs> of school. He, he did, he did uh, speak about it. Um, he's more on the, yeah, he's ecology. Yes, but um, he, he likes the, the climate change too. He, of course, has brought it up too. You know, recycle, save water, this and that. Yeah, well, the biodiversity losses potentially quite huge and they say maybe even half the species that we know could be lost by the end of the century. 
So yeah, this impacts a lot of different sciences and those that are enthusiastic about science. And so what about in university? Were there some classes or things you learned there or not really? Actually, yes. I just took an ecology and evolution class. Um, and my final paper was about climate change. Um, mostly, I think it was about food security and climate change. I just wrote my final paper on. So it was how climate change will affect food access in the coming decades. Um, because the crops and the vegetation loss is like a major problem, especially even in New York, how I wrote mine about corn, um, how corn crops are really taking a hit from climate change, um, decrease in precipitation and increase in um, carbon dioxide in the air, lowers the yeah. yield of corn crops. So. Mm-hmm. so we did learn about climate change and ecology. That was, again, one of the first times I learned about it in university though. Did it come up in GMOs, genetically modified organisms, in a little bit of the research? We have talked about GMOs, um, not in the context of climate change, though, really. We, mostly in like my genetics class, we talked about GMOs, not really in crops either. But uh-huh. Interesting. Oh, so I should have asked then, what, what, are, what are you studying right now and what do you hope to do? Um, I'm a biology major. Um, I'm not sure something in medicine, maybe a physician's assistant. We'll see. Yeah, you've still got a little time. Well, you will graduate the end of next year or? Mm-hmm. Yep, 2024. 4.0 or somewhere close to that? Oh, we'll hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now, what about um, some, some of your friends? Have they become interested at university in climate change and have they maybe gone some protest or yeah thought about doing a career involved in it yeah i do actually have some friends that are involved in climate change especially um some of my friends that go to the state university which is the university of environmental science and forestry so they're very very into climate um change and you know climate activism Um, One of my brother's friends that goes there always posts uh, like Instagram things about his, how he goes to protests and, you know, the big, um, he posted about the big clock in Times Square. I don't know if you heard about that, where it was counting down the number of years, I think we had until climate change became irreversible. Did you hear about that? No. No, they had, I think it was like last year they had that, which was very poignant, poignant state because it wasn't that long. I think it was like 10 years. Um, So yeah, that my friends definitely, especially now because you could just post on Instagram about it. I think Mm -hmm. people are more, you know, more willing to do it because it doesn't take as much effort to be an activist, you know, so. So what about that on social media? Uh, Obviously you're quite well adept in the social media having grown up in the environment. Do you see a lot on there about it or on the other end of the spectrum? Do you see a lot of uh, climate denial still on social media? It's mostly climate activism on social media, mostly because I, I don't, um, I don't really subscribe to people who deny um, climate change. So that's probably my own doing, but I'm sure there is climate denial still. Um, mostly on social media, it's, it's climate activism, um, which you know, you can't always trust that it's genuine. 
but mm. you hope it is. And have you run into anybody in your generation that is what they call a label climate denier? In my generation, I don't think I have actually, not outright. I think people are embarrassed um, a little bit. If they are a climate denier, they won't outright be, they won't outright uh, say it, you know? They'll probably yeah. just stay, stay quiet because uh, the science is just too overwhelming to even deny it these days and people know that. And what about uh, Greta, Greta Thunberg? Uh, first, what, what, what are your thoughts on her and then what are yeah, some of your friends' thoughts? Um, I think that she's very like brave, well-spoken, um, especially for being so young. I know she started when she was how old? 12, 13. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was super young. So that that's admirable, definitely. Um, I know some of my my acquaintances think she's like a little like a little much, but uh, like a little radical. But um, I think that you have to be radical if you want to get things done, because like sometimes because no one else is going to do it like you really have to push for it so mm -hmm. i do admire her tenacity yeah yeah maybe you heard about the, the extinction extinction rebellion and some other kind of um yeah protests in uk and then there's the yeah just to end fossil fuels I wouldn't say these are so radical but they've been quite disruptive and uh, but getting a lot of attention Over yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call her super radical. I think that just like she is very like outspoken. Like she'll like when she talked, in, who did she speak in front of? She spoke in front of the U.S. president, former. Trump, yeah. Oh yeah. And like, went up Congress. against him. Like yeah. Yeah. So I'm like more more just brave and like confident, willing to, you know, be blunt. So now, uh, yeah, you mentioned earlier that. You learned first in school and grammar school about climate and had some anxiety and but now learning more about it and what people are doing what's your feeling is it anxiety despair or a little more confidence um I, it changes because you know every fact i learn it's either despair or um confidence <laughs> <laughs> Because when you learn like, oh, people can reverse climate change or not reverse it, but, you know, make it better. Um, then you're like, oh, that's great. And then you realize they probably won't. So that's, you know, that's the despair. Um, or learning like, oh, as individuals, you can change climate change. You can, you know, make the effects better. But then you realize how many like how many big companies are responsible for like 80% of the world's climate change. It's like a handful of companies are responsible. So it's not really the individuals that are doing the damage. It's the big companies. And it's that's tougher to tackle than, you know, just changing your routine. It's tougher to tackle like a giant company. Yeah. Yeah, I would certainly agree there. Um, so just have a, two more questions for you then about, one is just a kind of a bonus question. What did you hear about... Uh, carbon capture and storage, if anything, technology, or like a negative emissions technologies? I actually, I haven't heard um, really anything about that. That sounds really interesting though. Um, maybe I'll ask you one of those questions. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I haven't really heard about that. 
Um, just learned about carbon sources and sinks in ecology though. And that was very interesting. Those are like natural, it sounds like a natural, more natural um, net, like a zero emissions thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I actually did have one other related question. What was I thinking to ask? Um, ah, I'm going back just a bit now, just to, to the food nexus, climate food nexus. Um, what have you heard or learned about with the food value chain and how that impacts climate, how perhaps we can change diets or change the sourcing of food and what that can do for the climate? Um, I think, yeah, I think that food and climate um, are like a cyclical almost thing. Like if climate change worsens, food production will worsen, but also with the mass food, food production, we need to have in order to sustain such a growing population, it also really negatively affects the, the climate change and the environment, um, especially meat-based diets. Um, I know they really have horrible emissions. Um, but I think that, especially even with the sourcing, I think that distribution of resources is a big problem, which is not really a climate issue, but I think that um, certain countries have an excess of food and resources like America. And then some countries have absolutely nothing and they're negatively affected by this climate change that they really didn't contribute to at all. Um, but I think that distribution of resources is definitely one of the biggest issues that people don't realize could help with the food scarcity. Yeah, there's this inequity about mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the food climate nexus as well there's inequity <clears throat> generational inequity mm. like you mentioned before about the yeah we're leaving you with this mess basically <clears throat> to try to clean up mm. all right i just have one more question before we flip the show around here so <laughs> i learned this from your cv as well that uh that your birthday falls on earth day so what does that mean to you I am proud to share my birthday with the earth. Um, <laughs> it, it, it makes me, you know, feel a little extra, um, extra responsible for my carbon footprint. You know, when I'm about to throw something out uh, that should be recycled, I think you were born on earth day. You should really <laughs> recycle it, <laughs> give back. But um, I, I do, I am, it is nice to have a birthday on earth day. Cause you know, it's like, you feel a little, I feel a little more connected, which, you know, yeah. could be, could be nothing, but I do feel a little more connected to the earth and nature. Uh, cool. All right. So at this point, uh, we'll put me on the stand and flip the show around for this final show and season two. And uh, yeah, what I've subjected all of uh, my interviewees to now I subject myself to. All right. So, uh, Let's talk about how you got here. Um, what started your interest in climate and the environment? Okay, well, that could be, obviously be a really long, long story, but I'll try to keep it brief. Certainly, I think when I was younger, I always appreciated being outside and yeah, being in nature, in the woods and so forth, and playing sports and all that. And then, of course, uh, snowboarding and skiing. Was, was a big part of that. Uh, 
now we know that there's some problems with that that industry in terms of climate, but I still do love it. And yeah, one day after, I don't know, hundreds of days on the mountain snowboarding, <laughs> I just had a thought like, yeah, maybe this could all change one day. And not only will I not be able to do it, but uh, but my kids and my grandkids and my friends and my family won't be able to do this and won't be able to do any sorts of activities outside. We'll be kind of stuck inside, whether it's climate change or air pollution, something like we experienced during COVID, just kind of stuck inside all the time because yeah, it's just not even habitable for the outside environments. And that, that became... Yeah, really troubling. <clears throat> and then, uh, yeah, I thought about th different things, but uh, at that point, I decided pretty much within that month that I came with that idea to, to go for the master's at the University of San Francisco, and then after to do to do the PhD with a, a little bit of work in between, which we might get into. It's very interesting. Um, so let's talk about your career now, your career path. Um, when you just said you wanted to embark on your PhD, um, what were your thoughts on your dissert dissertation? Well, this came at a moment. Uh, well, I Sorry, should I say without a tail. Yeah, well, I should say briefly between masters and, and PhD, I was a climate uh, policy practitioner in, in Europe, mainly in Denmark, and uh, got some different ideas there. Some ideas about it. It's quite difficult to change, but also it was really interesting to be involved in actually making some of that policy. So that I saw that, wow, this does have an impact. For example, the Renewable Energy Directive that worked on and Energy Efficiency Directive, which do you know these, uh, when you have like the color A through F color scheme, A is green and then down to F, it's mostly in Europe, but yeah, it tells you each product like on a computer, like how energy efficient it is. Mm -hmm. So I had the chance to work on that. And then when you see that in a store, uh, wow. Yes, so for what that does is actually explain quickly is it allows the consumer to say, okay, let me select the most energy efficient products at least to save some energy also will save on their electricity bill but yeah i had a hand in developing that policy and then to see it in the store that was really interesting but then i was thinking okay i want to go a little bit further into this and explore some different research methods and kind of have a louder voice and the master's degree didn't seem like i could get as far as i wanted so i went for the phd and then uh yeah on the dissertation I was starting to research and write it when we had the, the, the Trump administration. And then he sort of, well, that administration turned off the climate policy for a little bit, basically pulled out of the Paris Agreement, which I also had, a, uh, I didn't have a hand in writing the Paris Agreement, but I was involved in. And so that was not frightening, but I just started to think, okay, so what now, since I was doing my PhD at Rutgers and, and everyone in Denmark would say, yeah, you have to go back and sort out the United States because it's the biggest <laughs> polluter. Uh, so, okay, so what, what, what now? I thought about innovation and what that means because innovation's not a panacea, but certainly innovations can 
quickly drive throughout into markets and basically change the way people do things and even change habits just by way of being more efficient and more user-friendly or whatever. You have a number of different types of, now I'm speaking on technological innovations, there are other innovations Talk about later maybe. So then uh, with the policy turned off in the US, I thought, okay, but the policy is turned on and it's getting more stringent in Europe and even in places such as China and Japan. And so I thought, about, okay, if these policies are still quite strong and knowing that the US has a lot of funding, has a lot of startup companies, has a lot of innovation, will they perhaps react to the policies abroad? So are these, can we find where this happens, where policy in different countries that's more strong impacts the innovators in countries where policies might not be so strong? And how does that work over time? So that was the, that was the question I explored. And then uh, I looked at 32 countries in over 20 years about this question, how does a uh, foreign environmental climate policy impact innovation and innovators and in fact found that it's very very strong um, because as you know the global markets are all tied together and uh, I found it was actually stronger than than the domestic impact because you have an aggregate effect so all of the European countries if they're all pulling then uh, it's more than just one country so the good part about that was okay so so the Trump administration turned it off, but hopefully it will go back on, which it did. And uh, in the interim period, there wasn't as much as a fall in innovation in the US and other countries such as Australia, which went down as well in the same period. Um, and then as well, if a country such as the United States or Germany or the European Union as a bloc keeps these policies strong for long periods of time, that will have a really, really important impact. So that was another finding. It's not to say that small countries don't matter, but in terms of this, this model, that's what, it, that's what it says. But yeah, I could go on forever about the dissertation, so I'll just stop there. All right, I have two follow-up <laughs> questions. Um, so the first one is, do you think you have more of an interest in the legislation part of uh, climate change or the scientific like environmental effects or where they intersect or can you just talk about a little bit about that yeah so i don't deal really much with the hard science with climate change uh, really at all i i've seen all the models i've read all different kinds of models economic and climate and relation between them so kind of yeah, accept them as a given, and especially that the International Panel on Climate Change for 25 years has been building the science up with thousands of independent researchers. So it's pretty hard to say that what they're putting together is not mostly the right story. There, there could be some problems. There still are. They update things all the time. But the way science works is the incentive is to have good research and then you put it out for everyone to check so these thousands and thousands of scientists have checked it so i've accepted most parts of it but maybe talk about it a little bit later some parts of the policy get watered down mm -hmm. so uh so then 
to go back to, so on the legislative part, so I work now basically in the, the nexus between the policy and legislative part and, the, and companies and investment because there's this sort of idea that the policies can, can be implemented that will drive companies and technologies in the right direction maybe being low emissions or no emissions uh, and other things like that. And those are, again, technological innovations. Not, it's not so much social innovations. So these are the things that I, I tend, tend to look at. And uh, Okay, so what does this policy do in terms of um, companies? So to take one quick example, what we did at UCL was we looked at... Um, the UK climate change law that mandated that companies have to disclose their emissions over time. And we did find that, yeah, after some time and after they learned how to do it, because there is a learning curve here and this is all new stuff, they tended to improve. And that was an improvement internally and externally. Internally, because actually it's a wasted resource. It's a waste of companies' resources to just emit and burn things off. And then as well, managers start looking at it and sometimes managers are rewarded for doing better. And then as well, investors more and more are looking at, you know, these environmental social governance, ESG investors, they want to see that companies are improving. So this is starting to have an impact, not so strong yet. Mm. Mm -hmm. And my other question was, um, being from America, I know you're from America, the United States, um, how, what are some differences you see in the way that the United States handles climate change versus the Europe, the, you know, Europe, how do they, what are some differences? Well, it's definitely frustrating when probably even to this day, I have you know, friends back from the States, maybe we can call them climate deniers, but they questioning a lot of things and and it takes a lot of patience to sit down and try to describe it plainly, what I'm doing and what was the impact of it. Um, and then in the States, there's, there is this kind of thing that we can find technological fixes. And even I'm guilty of this since I study a lot of technological innovation. But in the end, it's about humans and what do we do? So we can't in really we can't really invent our way out of it. We have to, yeah, that we say start changing habits and start changing this and that. It is somewhat about that, but it's it's kind of all of it. It's just it's just purely a recognition of what the, the industrial past and the fossil fuel infrastructure does to the environment and changing all sorts of things. Uh, just the way we behave the way we think about starting a business, the way we behave when we're in a company, in a government, in any position. So this guy I spoke to recently from Scotland said, every job in the future should be a, you know, a green job. This is, we need to go towards a green economy. In the past it was, we need to go towards a capitalistic economy, something like that. Now we need to go towards a green economy, however that, that ends up. Mm. Do you think that capitalism and a green economy can exist with each other? It's a really good question. And uh, 
yeah, my my uh, dissertation chair, Gabriela Kutin, um, she pushed back on me a lot about this, that, yeah, can this even work within the capitalistic structures we have right now? And we see a lot of, we see a lot of evidence that uh, she's right, that, yeah, these structures are just so incumbent so strong and so resistant to change. And as well, like you mentioned earlier, shipping things around the world and all these supply chains doesn't really bode well for the climate. So there are two things that I would answer to that. It's the first, well, it's kind of difficult to, to think and to envision a world revolution overnight and then we're just changing the capitalist system we actually do see some things changing right now you know this sharing economy which for all detractors it has some uh, elements of change there if for example we didn't have i don't know how many i think it's 400 million cars in the u.s if we had a uh, hundred million and they were all shared because as you see, there are cars everywhere in the streets not being used. It's not a used asset. That would right away, you know, 25%. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then the other part of it is, um, yeah, the capitalistic system, as far as we know, it is on the grander scale, the most efficient way to organize things and things being people and technology and uh, yeah, changing systems. I mean, we had, we had experiments with other, with other forms, of course, you know, communism and socialism, which to go back to Europe again, I'll, I'll, I will answer the question fully. Um, there are some experiments with socialism and there are different kinds of, capitalism which exists actually in Europe already which might be the model for the future like in uh, Scandinavia and Germany they kind of have a socialistic capitalism for a quick example like a lot of the German firms are owned by the people that work for them mm. so this changes things right in the US it's it's not like that it's uh, you have to maximize shareholder returns and emissions and other climate destructive things aren't factored into that maximization of returns and it's also abstracted away. So this kind of, uh, yeah, this kind of more socialistic type of capitalism and that can also go down to, yeah, companies and governments owning again some of the key infrastructures for energy and ensuring that these are zero carbon or yeah, basically emission free energy systems you know, that can that can be done so that uh, yeah to answer fully the question over here with europe we see i see a lot more environmental consciousness and it is nice to be here and i have researched and worked a lot here about climate because unlike in the states where people just like mostly a lot of people want to argue with me <laughs> especially outside you know the well, yeah, New York and California and Colorado. Um, in Europe, uh, a lot of people thank me for my work. Um, so this is really quite quite a different thing. And 
I wouldn't say it has to do with the people in the States. I would actually put it on the, the capture is so strong, like the, the oil and, and gas industry, it funds so heavily the narrative that much people, much of people, what people read is just what they read. It's what they read. They might even be reading all sorts of different newspapers and literature, and it's just bent right in there. I mean, they they fund reports that look like scientific reports, and they're not. You'll notice that they don't have a lot of citations because they're not published in scientific journals. You know, and then you'll notice that they're, you know, sponsored by Exxon, Chevron, whoever. So when uh, the layman picks up this report, they don't actually notice that the funder, it's funded by ExxonMobil, the biggest oil company in the world, and they just take it at face value. Um, so yeah, and that's, yeah, that's quite strong. You don't have it as much here and there. Maybe people in Europe are just more aware of that, but it's, yeah, maybe it doesn't go on as much here. Yeah, no, I think that um, the capitalism, the pet cap, capitalistic system in America has been so intertwined with like American culture that it's almost like a capitalistic culture. So I feel like I haven't been to Europe. I haven't witnessed any of that culture over there, but I can speak for America. I feel like it's just like capitalism has been so ingrained in society that it's just, it's really just part of the culture now. So that's also an issue for many reasons besides climate as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, they have, and they have one last uh, point on that. It's also a double-edged sword because at the same time, researchers over here say, yeah, but you guys probably will come up with all the key technologies that we need to, you know, and scale those up quickly. And then we already do see that, you know, coming out of California and elsewhere, especially for energy yeah. storage and other, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about some of your um, research topics um, and how maybe this will help us further the climate change? Yeah, I think I already touched on a bit of the innovation thing. So I developed a few different avenues out of that, but I'll maybe jump to something a bit different. Um, bring it up more current. I'm sure that uh, my immediate uh, past funding uh, organizations would like that. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, I'll start with the one I just finished at UCL, University of College London, and I'll get to the one at Sussex, University of Sussex Business School where I'm at now. So this is uh, about, um, yeah, the private sector and climate change governance was a big research project that we had at UCL. There were 12 universities from around the world that were involved. And it was running for three years. I was involved for two years. And the question there was, okay, so the private sector is becoming more and more involved with climate change. And now they're saying since Paris Agreement that they actually do want to do some things. And they're putting together things like the Net Zero Climate Alliance and uh, Bankers for Climate. And uh, that's not the name of it, but uh, a number of other ones, uh, Net Zero Ambition and... Um, companies can declare 100% renewable energy goals, 100% energy efficiency goals. And as well, they can disclose their emissions to the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project. That's great. Um, so you have all these companies signing up for it, and all these bankers and green finance and all that. 
um, trying to green the financial system as well, another piece to that. But then you notice that all of these um, initiatives are also private. Some of them might have been launched by public or government, but now they're private as well. So you start to investigate, okay, so how does this work? You've got these private companies and then you've got these private initiatives and they're kind of in the wild west. They're just not doing as a please, but there's no regulation. And so what uh, what you see to take an example right now, you have companies that uh, they say, oh, they're so good in environment and climate and then they're not. Yeah, that's a problem because this jeopardizes not just the markets for climate and environment, like these new products that are coming for environmental and social governance uh, investments, but it also uh, confuses a lot of people. Um, and the last piece, you're rewarding, you're giving money to companies that are saying they're doing something and they're not. Um, so which only further, which is what happened with HSBC. They, they had all their climate credentials, they were flashing and it turns out they weren't. So they were one of the biggest funders for uh, fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement. So actually the UK government found that out and uh, I think recently raided their offices, but that might've been in Germany and are giving them pretty, not a big enough fine. They're giving them a couple million pounds for it. In future, this could should be like a 500 million pound fine because it's really, yeah, what is 2 million for a bank? It's nothing. Um, So yeah, we exported that project, this idea. And so what we did is we built out a model about uh, FTSE 100 companies. There's a hundred most profitable. uh, These are a hundred biggest companies in UK that are publicly traded. So they must declare their emissions. So we had all that data. And because since 2008, the UK said you have to disclose, disclose emissions if you're a big public company. And then we looked at their, when they joined up with these initiatives. And the question is, okay, when they join up with these initiatives that I mentioned, like the CDP and, you know, the Renewable Energy 100 and a bunch of other uh, climate initiatives they can join, do they then, then improve on their emissions? Maybe a year or two years, three years after. So we ran like a 12 year model with the data. And uh, unfortunately, we found that no, they don't, they don't uh, really improve. But for a couple instances, like we had a 12 models and then one or two, yeah, we find it so pretty, not so good yet. But we said, okay, but maybe it takes a little more time. A lot of them just came in line, but also probably it takes more regulatory teeth. So if they join up to these initiatives and they don't do anything to improve, like they just sign up to brand, to do green branding, they should incur massive fines and that might have an impact. So we say, okay, this could stay, the system could work somehow, but you need to be attached to regulation and fines and so forth. And then just uh, not to go too much further, but then we did a separate one, sort of similar, but in this instance, we looked at the sustainability reports. And then, so we got like a thousand of the sustainability reports, same companies, try to give them a different chance to uh, show their credentials. And uh, we did some text mining. So, so with text mining, you, you use a machine to go through the, the words and it basically builds statistics out of the words and the word counts. 
And with that, uh, we found that again, uh, yeah, a lot of the, the talk was climate talk without climate walk, we call it. They're not really walking the talk. But if they spoke about the climate uh, with regard to operational and efficiency improvements, so this would mean like a changing out like their oil and their, 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 their natural gas to renewable energy, um, maybe retrofitting their, their headquarters with uh, you know 100% renewable uh, energy efficiency. These firms were walking the walk. So when they made operational improvements, um, so that was an unexpected, interesting finding that came out of that. And that, that's always nice when, when you have unexpected positive findings. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's a, it's a good research. I think I read that, uh, that, that paper of yours, actually. Um, that's yeah, very interesting. <laughs> um, so let's go on to the more general questions. Um, why did you decide to make this podcast? What, what inspired you? Um, it's a good question as well. Uh, this, you know, it was pretty much not about Greta, but about Greta's generation because, uh, yeah, I, well, you, you know, I do travel a bit and I, 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 I'm not happy about my, my government footprint, of course. Um, I hope, yeah, I hope that my research partially makes up for that, but uh and traveling through a lot of different places and meeting people from all sorts of walks of life, what I did notice, and when I'm getting like depressed or anxious about the climate thing as well, I did notice that members of the greatest generation had their ears wide open or were listening to some of the ideas and things I had going on and wanted to learn more. And yeah, really did inspire me. And I thought, wow there's something here. Um, and, and when you speak to, of course, when you speak to people that are much older, a lot of times, of course, like my grandma does say, well, yeah, I, I do, I, I recognize it, but uh, I don't have time to take care of it. So what am I gonna take? So like, yeah, which is fair. And then the ones even, you know, that are just about to retire, kind of similar. They're looking after their retirement funds and understandable. So. I started to get a lot of uh, become enthusiastic about this generation and I thought okay what can I do making uh, something to like connect with them and to yeah outside the classroom because I did I was a lecturer for some time and I thought uh, oh yeah then an opportunity came up at UCL for a grant to sort of connect society with research and then it, it just came to me, oh, this is perfect. Um, let me, yeah, let me connect the research that uh, not, not I'm doing, but that other people yeah, with much longer track records are doing. And I was able to leverage uh, a lot of people right off the bat because I had worked already as a climate change practitioner, like I said, in Europe. So I listed some pretty uh, heavy hitters uh, right away and then that then it was easier to, to get some others along the way and uh, I would say I, I initially hoped I did a, a lot more in a shorter span of time but I, I will use the COVID excuse 
<laughs> because it's a, it's a lot more fun to like have a lunch with people and interview them and then to be able to buy them a lunch than yeah to try to lock them down to another another interview when they've been on yeah they've been on Skype or Zoom all day so but that all being said I uh, hope to get another funding uh, from University of Sussex if you're listening out there for season three so uh, yeah it's been great so far yeah good luck from that for that um all right so so this since this is the Greta's generation what advice would you give to some of the younger listeners you have on this um who are anxious to start their career and maybe worried about the effects of climate change um on them personally yeah there have been some great answers to this from uh from the people that have been on the show. So, <laughs> so there's a little bit of pressure here. <laughs> um, but every answer has been really unique and spectacular in my opinion. But um, what I would say is that, I mean, there, there's a lot of great science out there about climate and there are all these different vectors. So there's there's, like I just mentioned, climate with re- respect to the private sector, climate transition and what companies are doing. There's startup companies. Um, there's the technologies and what's happening with that. Where is that happening? Which countries? Um, there, There's the finance for it. Um, and then, yeah, there are implications about justice, about equity, about food about um, a collaboration, you know, across universities, across countries, across disciplines, across industries, collaborations. Uh, there's all sorts of things that one can explore. So not to overload you, I would just say, think about, pick something that is interesting to you and then Put that with climate. So if you're interested in, in, in food and the sustainability of food, put that with climate. And then go to Google Scholar and start searching a couple of things. And then you don't have to read the papers, but check out a few of the abstracts of the papers, especially the highly cited papers. And then you will see who these people are related to, what universities, and you can have a good look at their website, see what these universities are doing. Universities have all these sorts of databases, different sorts of things they write about. And you can kind of just keep pulling this thread. And then at the end of that thread, you can build up a little bit of knowledge. And it's not to say to start an academic career at all. It's just to say, I think everyone has a right to know and should indeed begin to know some things about what's going on. And here are all these publicly funded universities, a lot of them. We're providing this information. And then once you become a little bit educated in that, then you can help other people become educated in your generation. And this will have a massive effect on people. I mean, I think you probably have learned that when uh, when societies educate women, they in all in all marks, they do much, much better on everything. So societies that don't really allow women to get educated, don't allow free education for women. Yeah, they have bad marks in environment, in in, in economy, in in everything. So it's to say that a little education among a lot of people goes a really long way. 
and uh, that will probably also spark some different interests and would lead to perhaps reducing anxiety if you had it, but also, yeah, to understand what's, where this planet is going and where it could go, I, I think it's, 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 it's an important research endeavor. You, you might not be so interested in the different galaxies and planets and all that, that's fair, but it's, it's worth taking an interest in this planet since, yeah, I mean, even if you don't have children, there are literally hundreds of thousands of years of human history have arrived with you being here now, standing on top of that history and able to have this, you know, great lifestyle in a lot of countries, uh, maybe not all, but yeah, it's, it would really be a shame to throw that all away. Basically what all our human past given to us and then just to throw it away in a few generations doesn't really make sense. Yeah. I think there's definitely a responsibility. Um, and I do agree that I think uh, education and knowledge is a good foundation for, for most solutions. So yeah, your answer, um, I think, lived up to the hype of the previous answers. Nice job. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I have one more pretty fun question for you. Um, when you were 18, just graduating from high school maybe, um, did you think that your life was going to go the way it was or you would end up where you are now in your career path or wherever? Yeah, this is also great. Well, I won't say this is a great question because I came up with the question. No, applaud yourself. <laughs> yeah, let me applaud myself. What a great question. That is, uh, <laughs> um, it's an interesting question for me because, uh, mm. yeah, this thing about, and this is why it's so interesting when I conduct uh, this, this show to learn about people because everyone has a unique story, what the securitist part about their career, how it's gone. And to, to start with right away, no, I didn't think anything about climate and environment. In fact, what I thought was, first it was, it was mathematics. I was gonna be a math major. Yeah, I stopped that after like the first semester. And then, then it was a, a business major, like international business especially. And then I thought, okay, a lot of my friends uh, are going to work on Wall Street. You know, my brother's working there. I'll get a job there probably. And uh, yeah, make a ton of money. It's going to be great working in uh, Manhattan and, uh, and do that whole thing. But I guess, in fact, I think it was just like traveling to Spain between my junior and senior year. I, I, I started to learn a bit more about climate and saw a lot of their wind turbines and their, their effort in renewable energy where I started to become interested in them. I thought, yeah, towards the end of my senior year, that's not going to work for me doing the, doing that, doing that job, getting to be a cog in the machine just to, just to make a lot of money. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a long, difficult journey and, uh, and I tell people, uh, yeah, if you, you really want dedicated to do it, then do it. But if you want to be more comfortable, don't do it because, yeah, not yet, not only the the masters and the PhD. It's seven years of you're not having really an income, so you're pretty well set back. Uh, so you have to really, really want to do this. Uh, but but definitely, uh, every time I sit down to my work, I'm really grateful and thankful. 
and 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 I love what I do, uh, despite you know having the normal anxieties come that come with research, trying to finish things up that never seem finished, um, and yeah, not getting paid the top dollar, but uh, to kind of explore within the confines of the research program, what I want to explore, the questions I want to explore, where I want to look, to write, to read all the time. It's it's really great. And um, I'm happy that it didn't end up yeah, in Wall Street in front of the Excel spreadsheet for uh, 80 hours of my week. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, it's definitely more gratifying than that. Yeah. But, you know, can imagine. All right. Well, those are all my questions, unless you have anything right. else. So, so a- anything else right back at you? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, maybe, okay, I'll ask one more question you can ask back to me. Anything anything not on the, on, on Earth? Anything else, any other bonus questions that you might have on the top of your mind to, to ask me while, you, while you've got me here? Okay, I'll, I'll think. Um, let me think on it. I did have a few questions while you're speaking. Um, a little bonus session. <laughs> I saw from your um your past that you did take a circuitous path to success, let's say. I mean, as in like you weren't in school continuously. And do you think that that's um I wouldn't say like a better but just because I know that everyone's different but do you think that was what was best for you to not go to school just continuously and to you know travel and like um experience other things other than just just inside the classroom like I know you probably had some hands-on work yeah I mean the short answer is certainly and then the the medium to long answer is that <laughs> well, this is another thing, Europe to, to, to uh, the States. I mean, in the States, is kind of frowned upon to take a gap year here and there. Mm-hmm. In Europe, even I have friends in Switzerland that now do a gap year in between jobs every three years. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a year, but they'll do eight months of travel. They'll still do three years of work, eight months of travel. And of course, Switzerland is a rich country. But yeah, just to take an example, and in UK, this has always been a thing. It, after your undergraduate, before the master's, take a gap year, take a gap year. And then, so yeah, I, I didn't mention that. I had actually, yeah, I had like a three three or four gap, gap years until doing the master's and then another gap year or two, doing master's, two years I was doing master's and PhD. And and in that time, what I, while I was forming different kinds of ideas, what I wanted to do with research or whatever, I was actually doing more formulating, okay, what does this mean, my next step? Let me just slow down, you know, talk to a lot of different people, meet people, think about it. And then also just enjoy some time away from school, which you've been in for, you know, last 18, 20 years of your life, maybe. Enjoy some time away from your where you grew up and, and think about things outside the box a bit more. And uh, and yeah, definitely explore different cultures and, and and opinions and and I would say yeah that that enabled me to learn Spanish and and some other languages a little bit and through doing that then I'm able to speak with people from 
much different cultures. And uh, yeah, I had experience in, in Central America speaking about climate and environment with these people. And for them, it's, it's an entirely different issue. They're, they're worried about their drinking water. That's it. And yeah, and, but at the same time, they, they have knowledge about what's going on and to them it's very meaningful. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of draw on a lot of these experiences too when, I, when I'm working and researching. That gives me a little bit of a, that catalyzes me to keep going forward. Like a, a lot of these lower income, so-called third world countries that I've been to, I'm, I'm also working for them. So I'm not just working for your generation, the younger generation that haven't been born. I'm working for the people that have the, the environment basically destroyed for no fault of their own. Mm. And it, yeah, it's, it's nice to try to at least think that in some way and be helping them. So all of these ideas and thoughts came from the gap years. And then, and then, yeah, I was doing some other things during the gap years and thought, yeah, this isn't my fullest potential. And also you have to add one more thing. It, it lets you, save up a little bit of money but then save up your your thoughts and piece those thoughts together mm-hmm. so you 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 build a bank account maybe a small one of real money and they build an account of of your own individual thoughts and what you want to do with your life and and what one person said i don't end here uh one person said to me i think they were might have been from from england but it might have probably was from denmark actually said so you better take, you know, a gap year, a couple of different gap years while you can before you're 30, because after that, it won't happen. I'm telling you, this doesn't happen anymore after that, for one reason or the other. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you do it while you can. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was great advice. Yeah, that is good advice. Yeah, I just, I just thought I'd ask because um, I feel like a lot of people in the States, especially, just, you know, do a straight shot. And the, it definitely is frowned upon to take gap years, but you have taken gap years, I know, and you're still successful. So, you know, as successful as you can be in your field. So I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I encourage it to uh, all the young listeners out there. And uh, yeah, if, if you can save up a little bit and just go for it. And, and it doesn't have to be so wildly expensive as you might think like you can go and volunteer like in central america help them and it will cost relatively nothing I, I, in fact i did that I, I volunteered in central america for a couple months and it cost me three dollars a day because you had you had to pay your way because they they need some income actually yeah so it cost me something um yeah so uh that's great yeah so I, I guess we'll we'll finish up there with the with the show. Uh, many thanks, uh, Sal, for coming on and uh, discussing with us and being an excellent excellent interviewer. Well, thank you, Dr. Herman, for having me on. It's an honor to be on the show. Yeah, and uh, hope to catch you stateside in in a, in a few months and uh, see uh, what you're getting up to in in your own research. Oh, you will. You will see. <laughs> Great. Okay. All right. Thanks again. Of course. See you later.